Well, church, if you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're near the conclusion of the Gospel. We've got two more chapters to go, this one and then, Lord willing, next week. Uh, so let me encourage you uh, not only be reading ahead, as we encourage the church to do, but be keeping your Bible open in our time this morning as we read God's Word and follow along carefully. Um, before we dive into John's gospel once more. Let me just ask you to pause once more and let's ask the Lord in prayer for his help. Lord, even as we heard from your word, the help of other gods and idols is vain. Your name alone we bring to remembrance. Lord, we seek right now to keep our minds upon you, to trust in you, for you promise to keep us in perfect peace when we do. Lord, we recognize that all of our efforts to even fix our mind and heart upon you is in vain if you do not open our eyes. If you, by your spirit, do not help us to understand what we read and to see your glory, Lord, we, th- this is a, a futile exercise. And so we ask you, Lord, now to open the eyes of our hearts to see, for our ears to hear, for our hearts to respond. And that through your word, that you would set us apart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder how you would finish this sentence. I would be happy if... Fill in the blank. I imagine for most of us, a moment's reflection will make it quite easy for us to start a mental list of the things that we would fill in that blank with. The reason for that is because we want to know joy in this life. We want to be content. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I hope I'm discontent today. No, we want contentment. We want to know joy. We want not merely to exist. We want to really Live. Do you want to live? To really live? Let me ask that one more time. You can respond to the preacher, folks. Do you really want to live? Okay. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Sounds good. That's the answer to our question. And, and, and you may have no problem with Jesus' claim to bring life. In fact, you may believe that this morning. And if trusting Jesus was like golf clubs in a golf bag for a golfer, I think trusting Jesus would be easy because if following Jesus gets uncomfortable, if following Jesus doesn't seem to work tomorrow, well, you just put that club back in and grab a different club. But Christian faith Trust, defined by the Bible, is undivided. Think of it this way. When a man and a woman get married, they promise to forsake all others till death do us part, to keep only to their spouse as as long as they both shall live. In the same way, trusting in Christ as the one who gives life means forsaking all others all other gods, all other paths, all other 
means of bringing life, burning every bridge to every path that promises life other than Jesus. No one can serve two masters, Jesus taught, for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Christian faith, trust, is undivided. Now, when you look at the world, the world does not rely upon Jesus for life. We hear Jesus promise to give life and give it abundantly, but the world does not rely upon Jesus for life. The world trusts wealth and power and pleasure and entertainment and success and the praise of man. The world grasps, grasps for control, thinking if I can just have control, that's where life will be. And so for us Christians, what's confusing at times is how often the wicked look happy. We hear God's promise to give life. And then we look at the world who doesn't trust him and they seem happy. They seem to have fun. They don't seem to struggle. Their Instagram posts are filled with thousands of likes. They seem to get ahead in life. And so for the Christian who went all in with Jesus, the Christian who burned every bridge to plan B, looking at the wicked who prosper, it can be troubling. Because when we went all in with Jesus, and then tomorrow you wake up and you're struggling, we can start envying the wicked. It's so easy. It looks so easy. Christianity can feel hard. And we might be tempted to trust the gods of this world, the, the idols that the world relies on for life. Be honest. Do you feel that pressure? Do you feel tempted to envy the wicked at times? Read Psalm 73 this afternoon. So how can we know that life is found in Christ and Christ alone, as the Bible teaches? Well, that's the question that John 20 answers for us today. Jesus, if you remember from John 18 and 19, had just been crucified. He was arrested, tried, he was crucified, and then, put to, and then he died. And the spear in the side proved that he really was dead. And they buried him in a tomb. And so for his disciples, who didn't expect it to end like this, as far as the disciples could see, it was all over. This is not how it's supposed to end. And so they fall into a heartbrokenness. They're trapped in their disappointment. They're trapped by despair, by confusion, by fear. Have they just wasted the last three years of their life? Friends, when it comes to the good life, to the life that every human heart is hardwired to long for, Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity on your heart. You're hardwired for that, that life. We yearn for it, whether you're a Christian or not. How can we know that life is found in Christ and nowhere else? How can you know? Here's the answer that John 20 gives. Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> Jesus is alive. And so as we walk through John 20, what we're going to see is, is that it took a while for the disciples to actually realize that. It took a while for the disciples to kind of shift their thinking on 
on what the Messiah, the Christ, was supposed to do. And, and so this, this idea of the resurrection took a while to sink into their hearts and their minds. You're going to see that in John 20. But when they finally get it, when they believe, it changes everything. If you're a note taker, here's your, here's your four points. Point number one, despair turns into hope. Despair turns into hope, verses one through 18. Point two, fear turns into joy. Fear turns into joy, that's verses 19 through 23. Point three, skepticism turns into trust. Skepticism turns into trust, that's verses 24 through 28. And finally, point four, Trust leads to life. Trust leads to life. That's verses 29 through 31. Despair turns into hope. Fear turns into joy. Skepticism turns into trust. And trust leads to life. Wonderful transformation for those who see Jesus today and believe he is alive. Let's look at the text. John 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen claws lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So we're told there in verse one that it's Sunday, which is the first day of the week. That's why we worship as Christians on Sunday. Why? Because Jesus got up from the dead on Sunday. It's Sunday, and Mary, we're told, is the first person to arrive on the scene. It's so early that we're told that it's dark. Now, I think that one of the reasons that John includes the detail that it was dark seems to be to highlight the fact that Mary and the disciples were still in the dark about what was happening. They were in the dark about the resurrection. They were in the dark about the nature of the Christ. And so when she gets to the tomb early in the morning, probably filled with grief, she sees the stone that had sealed the tomb of Jesus, that that stone had been removed. And so she runs back to tell the disciples. But as she goes back and tells the disciples, what's clear is that the resurrection is not on her mind. She did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. And we know that because her concern is that somebody stole the body. She's concerned about grave robbers. So Peter and John were told to hear this, and so they run to the tomb to check out what she had said. On a side note, I have to laugh at the fact that John, who wrote this gospel, includes the detail that he beat Peter. (laughs) Peter's lagging behind, huffing and puffing a little bit, apparently. Peter arrives second, but while John is a little hesitant to go in, Peter and his and if you know Peter, he's the first in everything. So he, when he gets there, he just goes right into the tomb. And he sees the claws of Jesus in the tomb. 
but he doesn't see the body. Moments later, John enters the tomb with Peter, and the end of verse 8 tells us that he, referring to John, saw and believed. John believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll know that Jesus had told his disciples beforehand on multiple occasions, hey guys, heads up, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, but don't worry, on the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. He told them that multiple times ahead of time. But it's like it went in one ear and out the other. They didn't, they didn't, it's like they didn't hear it. The disciples and, 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 and folks like Mary, they had God's word in the Old Testament that, that prophesied that the Christ would not remain in the grave. Even in the, in, in the, in the call to worship this morning, Psalm 16, verse 10, he will not abandon my shul, my, his soul to Sheol. That's talking about the Christ. So they had the whole Old Testament, they had God's word in the Old Testament. They also had Jesus' word to them on multiple occasions, multiple times, telling that he would rise again. Had they believed God's word in the Old Testament, had they believed Jesus' word to them, they could have avoided the despair that they're all sitting in, the hopelessness that they're sitting in. But they didn't believe yet. But let's not be too hard on the disciples or on Mary. Friends, didn't some of the truths that you believe today as a Christian, some of the truths that you cherish deeply today, didn't it take you years of wrestling and thinking and contemplating and asking and prayer before you actually believed that? Sometimes. So in, in, in that sense, don't assume that because you taught something once to someone, people should get it right away. Sometimes it takes more than once. Don't assume that, what, don't assume that the person you're talking with and sharing a truth that you're excited about should learn in 10 minutes what took you 10 years to grasp. And, if, and friends, when we're, when we're caring for somebody who's sitting in despair and hopelessness, that's all the more important. When we're trying to encourage someone with the truths of God's word, we must be patient. Parents, Sunday school teachers, as you teach God's word to your children, don't give up when your kids don't automatically understand justification after you explained it once or propitiation after you explained it once. Why don't you get it? I just told you. No, it takes time. Catechizing takes time. Teaching takes time. It takes repetition. That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.1 said, it's no trouble for me to write to you the same things again. And you know why he said he does that? It's a safeguard for you. So we need to be patient with each other as we teach, we need to keep teaching, keep explaining, keep praying. And over time, God uses that repetition and prayer and patience. Friends, one of the things that we're gonna see in this text and you're gonna see throughout the New Testament is that when you're, when you're looking at Christianity, the linchpin of Christianity is the resurrection. We believe in the Bible because of the resurrection. We're Christians because of the resurrection. You pull the linchpin of the resurrection out of Christianity, it will not stand up anymore. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if the resurrection is not true, Christianity falls apart, you're still in your sin, and then we're wasting our time this morning. 
chapter 20 is carefully bookended by two claims uh, of John's account being an eyewitness account. You'll see that in chapter uh, 19, verse 35. He says, I was an eyewitness. I was there. I saw it. And in chapter 21, verse 24, the, the other bookend, he says, I was an eyewitness. What I'm saying to you, I'm saying is an eyewitness. So remember in elementary school and you had show and tell? Remember that? John is showing and telling us what happened 2,000 years ago as an eyewitness. John tells us that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, the first people at the tomb having that honor were women. Mary. And the other gospels tell us other, other women with her. But here's the deal. If you're making up a story in the first century, you don't want to have women as the eyewitnesses. Because in the first century, a woman's testimony was not admissible as evidence in the court of law. Nor would you, if you're making up a story, kind of fabricating a story, nor would you cast the disciples, his followers, in such a bad light. Look how slow they are to believe. If you're making up a story, you wouldn't put the disciples in such a bad light. So why does John say that the women were there first? Why does he cast the disciples in such a bad light? Because that's what happened. He's not twisting details. He's not making up a story. He's just telling it. He's letting the, the, the facts fall on the ground. This is what happened. I was an eyewitness. Mary was first. The disciples didn't believe. It's just what happened. And then you have the eyewitness account of the empty tomb. One of the key pieces of, of evidence of the resurrection. The empty tomb and his appearance later on. But here we just have the empty tomb. And if, if there were people who wanted to disprove Jesus' resurrection, and the Jewish leaders who put Jesus to death were very interested in disproving the resurrection. That's why they put guards at the tomb. That's why they put a huge seal on the tomb. They didn't want this idea of the resurrection getting out. So if they wanted to disprove this idea of the resurrection, all they had to do was simply show and provide the body of Jesus. But if you look through all the historical accounts, there's no evidence at all of them providing the body of Jesus, saying, here, let's look at it. If they would have, it would have squashed this idea. We wouldn't be here today. But there's no showing of the body of Jesus. Why? Because the tomb was empty. Friends, I understand it's a miracle. And, and for some of our ears, the idea of somebody getting up from the dead sounds outlandish. I get that. But as incredible as it sounds... All the evidence is pointing towards this and the testimony of God's word tells us that the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus happened. It's the linchpin of Christianity and it holds. The burden of proof is not on us. The burden of proof is on somebody who denies that because we have eyewitness accounts and all the evidence supports that. Anyways, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she went, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, 
but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Now, one of the things that seems that's happening here is Peter and John uh, had gone to the tomb first because they ran. It seems like they outran Mary. They had the time, their own time at the, at the tomb. They process things. They see the empty tomb, and then they head back. And by the time they go there, process things, and head back, then Mary comes. Because one of the questions is, well, why is Mary there? Why is she weeping? Well, there's a good chance that they didn't cross paths, and they could tell her what happened. So they had their turn. Now it's Mary's turn to process the empty tomb. Four times, John is going to highlight the fact that she's weeping, weeping, weeping. And in her grief, in her weeping, we're meant to see that she's confused, she's, she's heartbroken. And so when she gets to the tomb and she stoops in to look and she, she looks and at first, first the tomb was empty, but when she gets in and she looks in the tomb, it's not empty anymore. There's, now there's two angels inside. As one writer notes, their position at either end of the shelf where the body had lain makes, this, makes us think of the cherubim on the mercy seat that sat in the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's as if God was saying in this picture of these two angels in the tomb, there's a new mercy seat. My son has paid the price for sin and the way is now open into the presence of God. That's incredible. But Mary still can't see it. She's still wondering where the body is. She's talking to Jesus. She thinks he's a gardener. It's as if her eyes are blinded by the tears of her sorrow. And so Jesus, being the God that he is, doesn't rebuke her, doesn't make fun of her. He's patient with her. And he draws her out of her despair. And Mary is asked this question twice to draw her out of her, her, her despair. Mary, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Once by the angels and then a second time by Jesus. The, the question helps her to pause and to reflect and ask herself, why am I weeping? Why is, my, why is my soul in turmoil? If you read Psalm 42, that's what the psalmist is asking. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? That that question that's being asked of her, she's meant to ask herself, why am I weeping? One of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, a man named Martin Luther, uh, was known for bouts of depression. There was one day where he kind of sat in a deep depression for about three days over something that had gone wrong in the ministry. On the third day of kind of being in this dark depression, his wife Kate, we're told, came downstairs dressed in dark mourning clothes as if she was going to a funeral and Martin Luther we're told looks at her and says well who who died and and she said God 
What are you saying, he answered. How can you say that God is dead? God cannot die. Well, she said, the way you've been acting, I'm sure he had. I was joining you for the funeral. Friends, Mary was in spiritual despair. She had lost her grip on hope. And she, she, in this moment, was living as if God was dead. She couldn't see that her Savior had risen. Can you relate with Mary's despair? Like in the past two years, is there any time that you can think of the discouragement you can relate with Mary and the dark cloud of despair or discouragement? I think most of us can. There are days when even as a Christian, the dark cloud sits over our head. You can't see the way out. Hope seems to be lost in that moment. In that moment of discouragement or despair, you can forget the promises of God. You can start feeling sorry for yourself. And when you start feeling sorry for yourself, it leads to anxiety or anger or discouragement. I've been there. I assume you have too. But notice how Jesus cares for despairing saints. After gently asking her, why are you weeping? The next thing he does is he reveals himself to her. And he does so by speaking one word to her. Mary. (laughs) One word. And in that moment, she realizes this is Jesus. That's how powerful God's word is, friends. Like When you're in the darkest place you can imagine, God's word is so powerful, all he needs is one word to help you to remember who he is. And that will be enough to pull you out. Mary had stood days before at the foot of Jesus' cross and she had watched with her own eyes Jesus die, bloody, bruised, mocked, She watched them jab the spear in his side. She watched him die. That messes with you. No wonder she's in despair. So when she realizes, he's alive. It's Jesus. It's not surprising that she swings the other extreme. She falls at his feet and grabs a hold of him. She'd lost him once. She's not going to lose him again. But Jesus, in that moment, in verse 17, says to her, don't cling to me, for I have, yet not, I have not yet ascended to my Father. In other words, he's saying, Mary, listen, don't hold on to me in an effort to preserve the way you've known me during the last three years. I'm about to ascend to the Father, and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I have something better for you, but I've I got to go to the Father to do that. So Mary lets him go, and she runs back in joy to tell the disciples she had seen the empty tomb, or they had seen the empty tomb. Mary, though, is the first one to say, I have seen the risen Lord. So now you have two lines of evidence, an empty tomb and Jesus' first appearance in John as a risen Savior. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees us that God's power and God's authority are greater than any problem that you're going to face today or you will face tomorrow. You don't have a bigger problem than death. And if if he's already conquered death, then when you believe in the risen Savior, you can be confident that you're never without hope. 
trusting this God, this risen Savior, your despair turns into hope. Point number two, what happens when you trust the risen Savior? Point number two, fear turns into joy. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. We'll pause there. John begins by telling us the disciples were hiding behind locked doors. Why were they hiding behind locked doors? Because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Jews. The Jewish leaders, remember, had orchestrated Jesus' crucifixion. They had killed their leader. And the, the, the Jewish leaders would have known that these disciples were Jesus' followers. Now his tomb is empty? That puts the disciples in the crosshairs of the Jews who had days before killed Jesus. No wonder they're terrified. No wonder the doors are locked. The doors are locked, but notice in the text, all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, just appears. We don't know if he passed through the door. We don't know if he just materialized. We know that his body is real. He ate with them. They touched him. He's got a real body, but it's a new body. It's a glorified body. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. And and they'd seen Jesus walk in the water in the past. They'd seen him heal the sick, but seeing his glorified body just appear in the room must have shocked them. But just pause for a second at that point in the story. They're in the locked room, they're afraid, and all of a sudden they see Jesus. Pause. The last time these disciples saw Jesus, most of them, was when Jesus was arrested. And what did they do? They headed for the hills. In the moment when Jesus needed a friend the most, They ditched him. They abandoned him. They acted like Jesus didn't matter to them. Peter even denied him three times. He denied ever knowing Jesus. He cussed. I don't know that guy. Now that Jesus is back, what do you think they expected Jesus to say to them, knowing the last moment they had with Jesus? Better yet, if you were one of the disciples, what would you expect from God if you had just failed him just like that moments before. Perhaps you would cringe. He's going to whack me. You ever feel like that when you fail? Perhaps you see Jesus and you're like, oh, here it comes. He's going to, he's going to, He's going to rebuke me. He's going to, he's going to make an, a, a, a laundry list of my failures. He's going to rub my face in my sin. And you, you kind of cringe again. Or maybe, if you're there in that moment, the best you can expect from God is that he'll put up with you. You ever feel like that when you fail God in your sin? If so, I want us to notice how he does respond. Jesus comes to them. He didn't wait outside and say, you come to me. Get your act together. No. In their fear, in their failure, Jesus takes the initiative. He comes to them. 
And I, I imagine when he sees them and looks them in the face, he smiles. Because the text says, he looks at them and says, peace. Peace be with you. Peace. <laughs> peace. He doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't rub their face in their failure. He loves them. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And so when he had shown, when he shows them his side where the spear had gouged him, when he holds out his hands where the nails had pierced him, he does so to reassure them that not only is he risen from the dead, but in showing them his wounds and his resurrected body, he's announcing that his death has accomplished on their behalf what he had set out to do. He accomplished peace for them. And don't forget what he said to Mary in the middle of verse 17. When he sent Mary to go tell the disciples, he said, go to my enemies, the punks who are a bunch of failures. Abandon me when I needed them most. Is that what he says? No. Verse 17, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and my God, and your God. Don't just gloss over those words. In chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus called them his friends. That's awesome. But now, to those who had abandoned him and failed him and denied him, he he draws them even closer than a friend. He calls them brothers. Family. Loved by God. My God is your God. My Father is your Father. And you want proof? Look at the wounds. That's why I died, to bring you peace, to make you sons and daughters loved by God. So what effect does all of this have on the fearful disciples? Well, look at the end of verse 20. The disciples were glad. They were afraid, in verse 19, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They were glad. They were overjoyed. And and this is, we we should expect this. Jesus told his disciples about this moment in chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 20. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Why will they weep and lament? Because he's going to die. Why is the world going to rejoice? Because they thought they got rid of the, the, the... This Jesus who is a threat to them. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because of her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. When are they going to see him again? Right here, chapter 20. (laughs) and their hearts rejoice, and no one will take their joy from him. Seeing the risen Jesus proved that he drank the cup of God's wrath for them, that he took the sting of death for them. His resurrection proves that death is not the end for those who trust in him, and that's good news. If you've come to a place when you're able to say, you know what? I'm not afraid to die anymore because death is not the end. Where Jesus goes, I go. If he raised from the dead, he's gonna raise me up with him. If you're not afraid to die, then how can you fear tomorrow about messing up? How can you be afraid tomorrow about being overlooked by your friends? How can you be afraid tomorrow about losing your job? 
The risen Christ transforms our fear into joy. Amen? Verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold, a, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Second time, uh, uh, another time he says, peace be with you. Peace with God does not set us free. It's not like we say, well, got my fire insurance, I'm good with God, now I can be selfish and do whatever I want. That's not Christianity. Peace does not lead to selfishness. Peace with God sets us free to, to love others. Peace with God leads to peace with others. After Jesus repeats his peace be with you in verse, 20, in verse, 20, in verse 21, he then commissions them. This is where we see this, that, that peace does not lead to selfishness, but to the benefit of others. He says in verse 21, here's the commission. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Well, what was Jesus sent to do? We, we saw this already in chapter 17 when he prays the same thing. In John 18, verse 37, Jesus said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. If God sent the Son into the world to bear witness to the truth, then Jesus turns around and says, all right, First Baptist, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Guess what your job is? To bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to the truth about God, about sin, about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. We are called to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ to a dying world. How are we going to do that? It's terrifying to share the gospel with someone. And, and, and not only that, the, the, the great commission is we're not just called to share the gospel with a few people, but to the nations, the world. How are we going to share the gospel with the world? And not only that, in, in John 13, in John 15, in John 17, we're told that we're called to adorn this gospel message with our love for one another. So how are we going to put selfishness to death and be united as a church so that the world would believe that Jesus is sent from God. That's not easy. How, how can we be a church that loves one another sacrificially like Christ has loved us? Let's not joke around. That's hard. How are we going to do this? Only, only, only with God's help. And so after he commissions them in verse 21, he looks at them in verse 22, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. He said in 739, the Holy Spirit won't be sent until he's glorified. He was glorified on the cross, he removes sin, now he breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And you'll see in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the, 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 the full coming of the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus mean in verse 23, though, when he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. That almost sounds harsh. Like, what is he saying? Well, given the context, I don't think that he's saying that he's going to entrust to a certain group of people the right to forgive sins. All right, you three people, you go, you, you, you go out and tell the world you're forgiven, you're not. 
That's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is that given this context of our gospel proclamation, we're called to bear witness to the truth, like he has, given that context, Jesus is talking about the results of our sharing the gospel. In other words, when you and I go out and share the gospel, when the gospel is preached and someone hears that good news and they believe it, guess what? They're forgiven. If someone hears that good news and they reject it, guess what? They remain in their sin, unforgiven. That's what I think he means in verse 23. Friends, are there times that you feel afraid? And be honest here. All right. You ever afraid of what could happen tomorrow? You ever afraid what people might think of you? You ever afraid that you may fail? That you might fail someone, fail in your job, fail at school, fail in sports? You ever deal with the fear of letting someone down? What will they think of me? I wrestle with that fear. And I assume that you do too. And it's in those moments that we need the help of a living, risen Savior. I love how John tells us that a a locked door can't keep Jesus out. (laughs) In his glorified body, he came to his fearful disciples. And as he came to them, he comes to us in our own fear. As one writer notes, He doesn't wait for us to get our act together before he comes. He doesn't wait until we have enough faith. He comes to us in order to help us have enough faith to overcome our fear. That's the glory of a risen Savior. So friends, when you feel afraid, cry out to this risen Savior, Jesus, help me. And when you do, he will come to you with a promise. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God, and I will help you. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Trusting the risen Savior means that despair turns into hope and fear turns into joy. Point number three, skepticism turns into trust. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. We're told in this section here that Thomas wasn't in the room the first time. when When Jesus first shows up, and reveals his resurrected self to them. He wasn't there. We don't know where Thomas was, but he wasn't there. And so when the disciples come back and they tell Thomas the good news, we've seen the Lord. 
Thomas is skeptical. In fact, he refuses to believe. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Again, John does not tell us why Thomas does not believe. But I think his skepticism at this point is not surprising. I think most of us can relate with Thomas. For three years, Thomas had followed Jesus, had trusted Jesus. He was all in. Burned every bridge to path B. And then Jesus dies. This is not what Thomas expected. And, it, and, and this whole of the last three years ends in disappointment for him. It ends in shame for Thomas. It ends in a bit of embarrassment for Thomas. He'd opened up his heart to Jesus. Only to have it broken. It's like he's saying to these other disciples, you saw the Lord? <laughs> not going to make a fool out of me again. Mm-mm. I'm not trusting you. I'm not trusting anybody but myself. I did that once and it hurt. Not doing it again. It says that. And then we're told eight days passed by. I wonder how miserable Thomas was. Eight days passed by. But when Jesus shows up again, this time Thomas is in the room. He wasn't in the room the first time. The second time he is in the room. And it's like a repeat of the first scene or the previous scene. The doors are locked, we're told. Jesus appears in the midst of them, we're told. And again, Jesus says, peace be with you. It's like Jesus is doing it again so Thomas can see what the other disciples saw. And then he turns to Thomas And out of his love and concern for Thomas, he invites Thomas to feel his wounds. And he commands Thomas to believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Friends, you might have been a member of this church for many years. You might have walked with Jesus for many years, much like Thomas walked with Jesus for three years. But that doesn't mean that you can't struggle with unbelief, even as a Christian. It doesn't mean that you can't struggle with skepticism as a Christian. Are there times when you see unbelief in your heart? What are the reasons for your unbelief? Perhaps you have been hurt in the past. Somebody let you down. And you bear the scars of their failure. You bear the the scars of their abuse. You feel the scars of their letting you down. It might have been a friend, a pastor, a parent. It might have been a spouse. You open up your heart to them. It broke your heart. Skepticism gives us the illusion of control. Skepticism says to those who are hurting, just don't open up. Don't trust anybody but yourself. Because if you're in control, you can protect your heart. That's what we tell ourselves. So we don't trust anybody, we, don't, we, don't, we just trust ourselves. But what happens is instead of protecting our heart, when we isolate our heart like that, it ends up damaging our heart. Because we're not meant to live that way. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, puts it this way. He says, love anything, 
and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap your heart carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Because to love is to be vulnerable. Scary, isn't it? Scary to open up your heart when you've been hurt in the past. The way to guard your heart, though, is not by unbelief. The way to guard your heart is not through skepticism or only trusting yourself and keeping everybody out at arm's length. The way to guard your heart is by making yourself vulnerable to God, by opening up your heart and trusting the risen Lord. He will never fail you. And when your heart is broken, and it will be broken, we serve a king who binds up the hearts of the brokenhearted. And when he does bind up the brokenhearted, he leaves your heart stronger and healthier and more free than it was before. So we can take risks. We can open up our hearts and we don't need to fear it being broken. It will be broken, but we know that he will put it back together and make it better than it was before. That's what Thomas did. He overcame his skepticism with Jesus' help. And he answered him, okay, my Lord, my God. It's not just a Lord or a God. He looks at Jesus and he says, okay, I'm in. I'm opening my heart again. You're my Lord. You're my God. And he would never be the same. And neither will you be if you open up your heart to him. Trusting the risen Jesus turns despair into hope. Fear turns into joy. Skepticism turns into trust. Point four, last point. Trust leads to life. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Having, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in you may have life in his name. Friends, when you look at this historical account of Jesus or, and Thomas, right, and Thomas was skeptical, he had unbelief, and, and yet he got to see Jesus' wound. Jesus invites him, put your hand here, test it. When you see that, when you, when you hear Jesus invite him to do that, when you see the other disciples get to see firsthand, you might be tempted to think, man, they had it better than us. We've never seen Jesus. We never got to put our hand on his side. We never got to see face to face the physical evidence of the resurrection. And so the faith and the joy that Thomas and Mary and Peter had, yeah, that's nice, but they got to see him face to face. If I could see Jesus like that, I'd believe like they did. But friends, let me just remind you, as you read through the Gospels, hundreds of people saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. They touched Jesus. And yet, they did not 
believe. Many hated him, and they put him to death. And so one of the arguments that I think we see from the Gospels is that more important than seeing Jesus with our physical eyes is that you and I see him with the eyes of our heart. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Your heart has eyeballs. Not physical eyeballs, but your heart has eyes that see spiritual truth. And God is the one who opens the eyes of the heart. That's why Jesus told his disciples back in John 16, verse 7, it is to your advantage, it's actually better that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying, it's actually better that I go away. It's actually better that you get the written account of God's word and his Holy Spirit rather than seeing me face to face like right this. It's, it's to your advantage. It's why Jesus told Mary, don't cling to me in verse 17, because he has something better to give to her. And that something better is, that, is what you and I have today. Friends, we can be thankful that John got to see what he did, that Thomas got to see what he did, because God used people like John to provide us a true and faithful and reliable eyewitness account of what happened 2,000 years ago. But notice why John wrote them. John wrote them, and God graciously preserved his account in Scripture so that we could read it today in 2021. Verse 31, these are written so that you, First Baptist, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why we have John's gospel. Now, the life that John mentions here is eternal life. Not merely the extension of time, but the, the life that every human heart yearns for the life that we're created for. As Augustine once said, our heart will be restless until it finds its rest in God because eternity has been put on our hearts. That Jesus says that we need life implies that we're spiritually dead. You don't need life if you're alive. You need life if you're dead. And Jesus reminds us that we need life. Now left to ourselves, ourselves sin separates from us as from God who is life and sin is so destructive that sin does not just injure us or impair us. The Bible says that sin is so destructive it leaves us unresponsive to God. Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. We need the gift of life. And so for 20 chapters in John's gospel, John has shown us this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. He's shown us how Jesus came to die for sinners like me and you. And as God, as God in the flesh, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you and I have failed to live in our sin. And every one of us has failed and every one of us has sinned. And he lived the perfect life that he could go to the cross and die the death that we deserve to die. Jesus died in our place as our substitute. And then he rose again to prove that the work of redemption is finished. 
That the debt that we owe, the debt of our sin, of death and hell, has been paid in full for those who trust in Jesus. Listen, it's not 50-50 that you do 50%, you do your own part, and then God does the other 50%, and he does his part. It, ain't, it doesn't work that way. When you're dead, you do nothing. He's, he, he does from beginning to end the work of redemption. He pays the price in full, and he says, it's finished. There's nothing more you got to add to it. All you got to do is open up your heart, open up your life, turn from your sin, trust in Christ, and receive that gift by grace, by faith. Mary went from despairing to hopeful. The disciples went from fearful to joyful. Thomas went from being skeptical to confident. And now here at the end of John 20, John turns to us. And he invites us to turn from our sin, to trust in Christ alone, that we might have life in his name. To those who do, Jesus makes this promise. Blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, who is the risen king, who was clothed in frail humanity, who was tried as a criminal, falsely accused, who did not open his mouth but went like a lamb the slaughter, who willingly laid down his life and then on the third day rose again. Lord, we believe that Jesus is alive and we praise you for him and we praise you for his resurrection. We praise you for the, the difference that it makes. And so Lord, we pray that we would trust in you. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see and to believe and to rest. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.